0: Looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, we mentioned you know, we could spend forever looking at the implications of that. Today we're going to look at the resurrection, and those two things obviously go hand in hand. Without the resurrection, then the crucifixion means nothing. Jesus is just a martyr. Um, without the crucifixion, then there is no resurrection. You have to die if you're going to be brought back to life. So throughout the New Testament, those two things are held together. You'll see the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the implication is always both of those things put together. Sometimes you'll hear hear all that referred to as the passion of Jesus, everything leading up to and including his resurrection. So we've divided it just for the sake of time, but theologically, scripturally, those things are always held together. So we're just going to walk through some verses, and then I'll make a couple of observations. Starting in verse 40. So Jesus has just died on the cross some women were watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome in Galilee these women have but excuse me had followed him and cared for his needs many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there so it's interesting the the people who are eyewitnesses to the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are all women you'll see women's names throughout these next few verses that we're looking at, and kind of the what's interesting about that is women were not considered credible witnesses. They weren't allowed to testify in court. Their word didn't really mean a lot in Jewish society at that time. Uh, some people say the whole story of the resurrection was a, is made up. It's something that the church read back into history, and just one little shred of evidence against that would be if you were going to make up a story, like this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put it in the mouths of women in this time. For us, that's different, but for them, you wouldn't allow your eyewitnesses to be people who everyone considered to be not credible. So you have these women who have been a part of Jesus' ministry, it looks like from the beginning, and they were the only ones who were eyewitnesses to his death. Remember, the disciples have all scattered. So these women have seen the death, they're about to see the burial, and then the resurrection. It was preparation day, so that's Friday, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, so for the Jewish uh, way of counting time, sunset began the next day. So we're looking at it's Friday evening approaching sunset. When it hits sunset, that becomes Saturday and the Sabbath begins and there's no work can be done on the Sabbath. So it's preparation day. It's this Friday. As evening approached, we're getting close to the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, who is himself waiting for the kingdom of God went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So people who were crucified weren't supposed to get a burial. Um, you had to go and ask for the body. And in general, the body was given to the family members of, of Jews. For Jews, it was scandalous to leave a body hanging up. That's in Deuteronomy 21. You can go look at it. Uh, God says, even if someone is hanging on a tree for a capital offense, you've got to bury them because it desecrates the land. So in in general, a family member could go to whoever the governing authority was, ask for the body, and would be given the body. The exception was treason, which is what Jesus was convicted of. People who were convicted of treason were not allowed to be buried. They just hung up there to rot and be eaten, and they weren't allowed to be mourned either. So for Pilate to go, was a, the, the boldness there is he's identifying himself with a guy who's just been convicted of treason. So Pilate was surprised. To hear that Jesus was already dead, summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. Remember last week we said it usually takes two to three days to die. Jesus died in a handful of hours. When Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Think of a cave. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James saw where he was laid. So there again you see these women who are eyewitnesses. The stone was most likely a, a, a disc, and there would have been a groove in the ground in front of the opening to, of the cave, and one man could have pushed the stone into that groove. It would have taken several guys to actually get it up and get it out. When the Sabbath was over, so now we've passed Saturday evening, so now it's, it is it is Saturday evening, the sun has set on Saturday. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, again you see these women, They bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' bodies. Jews did not embalm. They waited for a body to decompose, and they took the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary. So the spices were just to cover up the smell. Very early on the first day of the week, that Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Again, it would have taken several men to move this stone. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on that on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In Mark 14, when Jesus, the last prediction of his death, he says, when he's saying to the disciples, y'all are all going to bail on me, you're going to disown me. He looks at Jesus. G- Peter and says, you're going to deny me, but he says, I'm going to meet you again when I rise in Galilee, so this is the angel, that's an angel reminding them, go to Galilee, and he specifically points out Peter, the last time we saw Peter is when he was turning and running because he had disowned Jesus three times, and so you've got that idea of redemption of Jesus specifically saying, make sure that Peter knows I want to see him again, you see the grace and mercy of God there. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That idea of fear runs throughout Mark. When Jesus shows his identity, people often respond in fear, and so he's consistently kept that through. Um, When Jesus walks on water, the disciples are afraid. When he calms the storm in the boat, the disciples respond in fear. Uh, When he heals the garrisoned demoniac, and the townspeople see this guy who they knew to be a lunatic dressed and in his right mind. It says they were afraid of Jesus. When he healed the hemorrhaging woman, the woman had been bleeding, I think, for 12 years, and she thinks she snuck up and, and, and been healed without Jesus noticing. He turns around and says, who healed me? It says she comes forward, and she's afraid. Anytime he show, oftentimes when he shows his godness, people respond in fear, and that's what's going on here, and Mark ends his gospel there. If you have a Newer translation in NIV, you probably have a line, and then in parentheses it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. If you have a King James or a New King James, it doesn't say that. Um, Most of the more modern translations do. What's going on there is Mark, most people will say Mark ended at verse 8. Hard, abrupt ending, and I think that's where it ended because Mark is saying, what are you going to do? This is how these women responded. What are you going to do to this message that I've just written down? And at some point along the way, pretty early on, some guy said, that's not a very good ending. And so they added some stuff. If you read Mark 9 through 20, most of it sounds a lot like what happened in Matthew and a lot like what happened in Luke. They've just kind of pulled that together, except they put in some stuff about picking up snakes and drinking poison. I don't think any of us are online for any of that anyway, so it doesn't hurt that we lose those couple of passages. And you may say, well, if that's been added, how can I trust anything else in the Bible? Real quick, I can give you more. There's about 5,600 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. There's about 5,600 ancient manuscripts, and they agree on 99.5% of what was written. There's about 181,000 words in the New Testament. There's zero debate on all but about 400 of those words. So there's... This this is not an issue. This doesn't bring the rest of the Bible into question at all. Uh, It's just when the King James was written, they had manuscripts that went back to a certain period, and so they included Mark 16, 9 through 20. That was 400 years ago since the King James has been written. Archaeologists have discovered older manuscripts that don't have it, and so the newer translations don't use it. That's what's going on there. Nothing to get too bent out of shape about, but I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that later if you want. So, this is what I want us to do today. This resurrection, if you've been raised in church, you've heard this. If you've been, actually it's kind of a Bible Belt thing. You've heard Jesus died, he was resurrected, forgave us of our sins. That's kind of a cliche for most of us. I want to try to peel back a little bit, step outside for someone who maybe is hearing this for the first time, someone who maybe is having difficulty grabbing onto this idea of somebody rising from the dead. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says he preaches Jesus crucified, or Christ crucified, and that's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So the original audience that the disciples are trying to reach, for them to hear that the Messiah has been crucified, that doesn't make sense. Paul says they're stumbling over that. They're tripping up. We've looked at what happened with the religious leaders. You've seen that time and time again. They can't get that God's anointed deliverer is going to die. It's a stumbling block for them. To the Gentiles, to these Greeks, it doesn't make sense that someone who was innocent, who was righteous, that God would allow him to die. That's not fair, that's not just, it's foolishness. Same thing is true today for many Muslims. They don't get the whole idea of a sinless Jesus dying on the cross because God is perfectly just, and that's not just for an innocent person to die. So it's, there's that foolishness, that stumbling block. I think for us, as I've talked to people I don't hear a lot of people getting hung up on the fact that Jesus died. I don't hear that as a stumbling block. I don't hear people say, well, that's just foolish that Jesus died. But there are some things that do seem to get in the way. The stumbling block, what I've heard, is the exclusivity of Jesus. Saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that seems to be something that people kind of want to say, I like everything up to that. That's bigoted, it's narrow-minded, it's intolerant, it's arrogant, it's... All of these things that seem to run contrary to this God that you just presented. I can't, I can't get on board with Jesus as the only way. It's a stumbling block for a lot of people who you're going to talk. Maybe a stumbling block for you as well. You may be someone who's considering Christianity, and that part is just difficult for you to wrestle with. There's 2 billion Christians in the world. That means there's 5 billion who aren't. And you're thinking, really? He's the only way for these folks who may never hear the gospel and kind of all the way all of that plays out. I think the resurrection can address that on some level. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 17 through 19, this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's a nice way of saying died. Uh, Those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. The New Testament recognizes that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we've got nothing. Again, then the most you can say about Jesus is he was a great guy, maybe he performed some miracles, and he was a martyr. He died in the name of his cause. That's it. There's thousands of martyrs throughout history, and he's just one of many. And the New Testament recognizes that uh, the resurrection is the linchpin for everything if you're a Christian. If you're going to Follow Jesus, the resurrection, that's it. You've got to hold on to that or you've got nothing. Why, Paul says, we're still in our sins. Last week we looked at this idea of Jesus' death as a ransom, as a payment. Uh, We've sinned, we've run up a debt, and Jesus pays the debt that we owe. He's purchased our freedom. 100% true. Another way of looking at Jesus' death and resurrection is a fight. It's a cosmic battle between God and these powers who are Aligned against him, and death is one of them. First Corinthians 15, I think it's 29, says that death is the last enemy. Might be verse 26, says death is the last enemy to be defeated by Jesus. Because death is so much a part of our life, sometimes we forget that that's not originally how things were supposed to be. When God created Adam and Eve, they were supposed to live forever. They couldn't even eat animals at the beginning. Those of you vegetarians, there you go. And Genesis 1 and 2, all they could eat were plants. It wasn't until after the flood, after Noah, that we were allowed to eat meat. And I'm going to take full advantage of that until he says not to again. But, originally, there was no death. Death is a consequence of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We don't die because we're human or because we're born. We die because we sin. It's the payment, the penalty for sin. So death is an enemy, it's an intruder into God's plan. And it's the last enemy, Paul says, to be defeated. If you look at Revelation 20, the last enemy enemy to be thrown into the lake of fire is Hades and death. So kind of that whole picture of the grim reaper, there's something to that. If you can think of death as an entity, someone who, uh, a power, who is fighting against God's plan and purposes, Jesus had to defeat that enemy in order for us to live forever. That's why the resurrection is so important. If Jesus is still dead, then death still reigns, period. It doesn't matter what we say about the cross. It it doesn't matter if he's still in the ground. Then death won, and he's going to win in all of our lives as well. Dave Matthews and Paul are right. If there is no resurrection, eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. That's, That's where we are. If there is no resurrection... If all we've got is Jesus is a great guy and he can help me navigate through life, that's not enough. According to Paul, it's not enough. If he's defeated death, though, if he's been raised, then we're talking. Then this last enemy has been defeated. So this idea of Christianity being exclusive, yes, it is exclusive. But it's not in a, I'm trying to keep people out, arrogant, intolerant, bigoted kind of way. If you think of eternal life as a place, Jesus is the only guy that's been there and come back. So if you need a guide, why don't you follow the guy who's actually been there? Everybody else has died on the way. Muhammad, he didn't make it. Buddha, he didn't make it. Whatever yogi master from Hindu, Hinduism you want, they didn't make it. None of them made it and came back. He's the only one who got there and came back who can lead us. So it, yes, there is only one door but the door is open to anybody who wants to enter it. It's exclusive in the sense that there is only one way, but it's inclusive in the sense that anybody can get on this way. Culture, gender, education, all of those things are completely irrelevant. We all enter under the same, the same way through repentance and faith. And again, that's regardless of age. None of that stuff matters. So yes, there's only one door but it's open for everybody. This idea of foolishness. Paul says that a crucified Messiah is foolishness to Greeks, to Gentiles. I think for us, kind of out here, one of the things that's foolishness is to have a supernatural faith. It's not scientifically verifiable. Uh, You can't prove it. It sounds silly to say, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and that some of these miracles, and we want to kind of cut some of those parts out or downplay, embarrassed about, the supernatural character of our faith. But the resurrection, we have a supernatural event that's the foundation for all we believe. It's the linchpin. It holds everything together. And it's also the foundation upon which everything stands. So if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, it's a supernatural deal. Supernatural doesn't necessarily mean weird. It means it's not explainable according to natural processes or phenomena. That's it. That's all that's going on there. Um, in 1932, Jillian, let you show that clip. So, game three, Cubs versus Yankees, 1932. Babe Ruth is up. You don't have to, we don't need to hear it. That's him right there, pointing to center field. I'm about to hit a ball past that flagpole, is what he says. Next pitch, gone. Hits his home run past this flagpole. That was on the, that was actually already had two strikes on him, so that's, he's looking at strike three hits a home run, goes down. It's this legendary moment in a legendary career. He called his own shot. Any of you have ever played a sport, it's difficult to do, it's difficult to hit a home run, ever. Very difficult to say, I'm about to put it out there on the next pitch. Not counting the pressure of being in a World Series game and all of that. He he called his own shot, and Jesus did the same thing. And Mark... 9.32, 9.31, 9.32, 9.31, he says, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Many of you might have read that book, Heaven is for Real, about the little boy that has this out-of-body, near-death experience thing, and maybe you've heard of other folks who their heart stops for 30 seconds or three minutes or five minutes or whatever, and they come back to life, and, or they're resuscitated, and they tell you a story, and those wonderful. Jesus is in a different category altogether. He was dead for 36 hours, from sundown on Friday to sunrise on Sunday. And not only did he come back to life, he said, I'm going to. None of those other guys that I know of ever predicted much their death, much less the fact that they would be revived. Jesus did just like this, we saw with Babe Ruth. Jesus, before it ever happened, said, this is how you're going to know that everything I'm telling you is true. I'm going to get up. After three days. And he did. For Jew, a part of a day was a full day. He was dead. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Three days. Amazing. That's a supernatural event. You can't explain that based on any natural process or phenomenon. People who've been dead for 36 hours don't come back to life. They just don't. No other explanation other than the bodily resurrection of Jesus explains why we're sitting in this room today. Undeniable, the Christian church started in the mid-30s A.D. in Jerusalem based on this message that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Nobody will argue with that. Christian church, mid-30s A.D., by this group of 11 guys saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Some people say, well, he didn't really die. They call it the swoon theory. He just fainted on the cross. and They put him in the tomb, and the tomb was cool, and he came back to life. First of all, the guys who executed him, their job was to make sure he's dead. We just read, Pilate said, was he really dead? The centurion said, yeah, he's really dead. If he wasn't dead, then the centurion has to die in his place. Yes, he was dead. John, they poked the hole or they poked him with the spear. Blood and water comes out. They put him in this tomb, which is guarded by four Roman soldiers. Somehow, Jesus, who's been beaten into within an inch of his life, laying in a tomb, Comes to, moves this stone that maybe weighs a thousand, two thousand pounds, overcomes four Roman guards, and then shows up. And everybody says, Oh, you've been raised from the dead. He looks like death. You've seen the passion? He got the fool beat out of him. Who in the world is going to believe that that guy was resurrected from the dead? Some people say, Well, you know what? It wasn't that he did die, the tomb was empty. The women just went to the wrong tomb. It was dark. They didn't know where they went. Well, if you stand up, it's a prominent tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, we see his name. People come up and say, this guy, Jesus, he's been raised from the dead. If you're part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, you're trying to squash this message, what do you do? You go to the tomb, you move the stone and say, actually, he's not dead. There's his rotting corpse. And you bring it out for everybody to see. Well somebody stole the body who who steals a body? There's no Halloween going on back then you would n- have any use for that. they left the stuff that had value the linen and the spices they took the stuff that didn't have value. Grave robbers don't do that again forget the four Roman guards let's say somehow they get past them. who steals it not grave robbers they left the only they left the stuff that had value. The Jewish authorities why what reason as soon as the disciples start saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. They just present the body and say, see, they're, they're lying to you. They're not telling you the truth. The whole thing goes away. The disciples, did they steal the body? Last thing we saw, they are running like a bunch of scared kids, but somehow they get the courage to overcome these Roman soldiers, move this stone, steal this body, and then go off telling everybody a lie that they know to be a lie, that Jesus rose from the dead. We know 10 of the 11 were, were killed because of this message. Nobody does that dies for something that they know to be a lie, all ten of them. doesn't make sense at all. Hallucination. Everybody so wanted Jesus to rise from the dead. Pretty tough. Hallucinations spread out over 40 days. 500 different people having the same hallucination. I might have a dream, but I don't think you've ever had the same dream that I've had at the same time. And that's what we're saying here. We all had the same hallucination. For a hallucination to kind of take in a group, there are some uh, examples of group hallucinations. There has to be this real high expectation that something is going to happen. Nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. That's why everybody ran away. They didn't expect the Messiah to be killed, much less to be raised from the dead. The women went to the tomb to put spices on his body so it wouldn't stink when it decomposed. Not because they thought it was going to be empty. Nobody had any expectation that he was going to get up. Nothing else to me makes sense. You can dig into that more deeply if you want to. That's a summary on all of these different explanations for why in the mid-30s A.D. this movement started with people saying Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know any other explanations, but that means he did. He rose from the dead, so we have a supernatural foundation to our faith. You follow, if you're a Christian, you follow a guy who called his own shot. Way more impressive than that. He said, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to get up. And when I get up, you're going to know that everything I said was true. There's confidence. You can take confidence in that. It might be foolishness to some. Paul says this message is foolishness to some, but it's wisdom to those who believe. If You're kind of on that fence Is this something I really buy? Is this something that I can grab onto? Is this worth my life? Let me encourage you to say yes. There is a supernatural element to it. Yes, you can't explain it by natural processes and phenomenon, but do you want to follow a God who can totally be explained by natural processes and phenomenon? No. He's just like one of us at that point. I want a God who can supersede all of that. Whenever he wants to. I want a God who can say. I'm stronger than cancer. And I can put a family. Back together. And yet we can do it through counseling. Through these natural means. And we can do it through chemo. Through these natural means. Or we can do it right now. Right here. Supernaturally. That's his call. How he wants to do stuff. I just want to know that he's able to. That sounds like the kind of God that you want. Let me ask you this. When we started, you don't remember this. The original message that Mark says, this summary statement, this bumper sticker is, Jesus preached this message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And I did this little demonstration, and we're going to close with this as well. We're all born with our backs to God. So if this is God, we're all born with our backs to him. Sorry, I'm putting my back to y'all. So looking elsewhere for security, for fulfillment, for direction, for purpose. That's what sin is, ultimately. Sin is not the little behaviors that we commit. Yes, those are sins with a little s, cussing or whatever that is. The sin with a capital S is this desire to live my life apart from him, to make my own way. It may not be out of this rank rebellion. It might just be because I don't know any better. I'm trying to figure things out. Where am I going to sit? At the lunchroom table. And so I'm, carving away for myself. So my back is to him. And for many of us, we spend years pursuing these other ways of finding fulfillment or direction or identity or purpose. I'm walking farther and farther away from him. Again, it might, I'm not saying whether you're a good person or a bad person. I'm saying you're looking to have the deepest desires of your heart fulfilled outside of, apart from God. I'm trying, whatever this is out here, I'm trying to get these deep desires in my heart fulfilled that way. My back is to him, and I'm walking away from him. Repentance is when I recognize, you know what? I'm moving in the wrong direction. And I pivot, I turn, and I look back towards him again. This is the definitive moment. Following Jesus is a daily decision, but there's a definitive moment where you go from looking away from him to looking towards him. That's what we call regeneration, becoming a Christian, getting saved, whatever tag you want to put on it. That's what's happening here. Baptism doesn't do it for you. Going to church doesn't do it for you. Reading your Bible doesn't do it for you. Good works don't do it for you. It's a decision in your heart. I recognize I have been living apart from him, and now I want to live Towards Him. He's the one that fulfills me. He's the one that directs me. He's my source of identity. He's my source of purpose. And I'm going to begin to live my life towards Him, not away from Him. Once you make that decision, then the dailiness kicks in. Are you going to walk towards Him? Yes or no? Some of us repent at, when we're 12 at vacation Bible school or youth camp, and we stay here for the rest of our life and just figure when we die we're going to go to heaven because. We made a decision at some point. We checked the card. I'm a Christian. And we're very distant from him. I'm not going to argue about once saved, always saved, and how all this works. All I want to say, what's the point of turning and saying, I'm going to live my life towards you and then staying in the same place? The world that we live in, it's a conveyor belt the other way. So if you're stuck here, if you're not actively moving towards him, what's going to happen is the pull of our culture, in addition to your own flesh, is going to cause you to do this. You're still looking in the right direction. You're just walking the wrong way. And for some of you, this is how you feel. You, don't, you say things like, I don't feel as close to God as I used to. I don't know where the joy of my salvation went. If you use that phrase from Psalm 51, you say, I don't feel God anymore. Those type of things. Distant, desert, those are the type of words It could be what's going on is you're backing up from him. You're still pointed in the right direction. Again, I'm not talking about are you going to heaven if you get hit by a bus? I'm which direction are you walking? Towards him or away from him? For some of you, this is where you've been. You've born, you're this, you've been walking away and something has been pulling you back. You haven't made a decision yet, but you find yourself you're exploring Christianity, you're, you're feeling things in your heart. Maybe you're coming here on Sunday and some stuff is stirring in you. You're having some conversations with people that are spiritual and you find yourself doing this, which is wonderful. The next step for you is to do this. It matters what direction you're facing and it matters what direction you're walking in. Don't try to figure out what card you check, Christian or not Christian. That's not the question this morning. Two questions. Which way are you facing? Towards Him or not? Or do you find your purpose, your identity, your fulfillment, your direction? Is all of that found in Him or is it found in anything else? Anything else? Good things, family, service, anything other than Him. You're, you're facing the wrong way. In which way are you walking this morning? Are you walking towards Him? Are you intentionally on a daily basis? trying to get closer. Jesus walked over 3,000 miles during his three years. There's a daily commitment. I'm going to re-up with him every day. I'm going to follow him. He's going to set the agenda for me today. He's going to set the value system for me today. He's going to set the priorities for me today. He's going to impact and influence and direct the way I treat my wife and the way I treat my kids and the way I treat the people I work with and the way I treat people who walk in the door. All of that. Or... Are you walking away? How far away can I get and still be in? Maybe it's not even that conscious. You just picked up maybe some habits along the way, some mindsets along the way have begun to creep in that are causing you this distance that you feel. It doesn't have to be that way. We just looked. You serve a supernatural God. He fixes things. He can fix things instantly. We want to believe him to do that this morning. If you're facing the wrong way, all you have to do is repent. There is only one way, but that one way, that one door is open to everybody in this room this morning. All you have to do is acknowledge, I've been looking in the wrong direction, and I want to look in the right one. That's it. For some of you, you're looking in the right direction. You're just walking the wrong way. This morning, you can say, you know what? I need to re-up this thing, this thought, this behavior pattern has gotten in the way. And I need to be set free from that. We looked at that last week. One of the benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus is freedom. Freedom from things that hold us back, that pull us away from him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the resurrection. I thank you that, from where I'm standing, it's a pretty clear case that your son rose from the grave honestly I don't know how many people really wrestle with that versus wrestling with the implications of what does that mean if Jesus rose from the grave and I think it's where many of us are today what does that mean for me today on September 4th that Jesus died for my sins and that he got up again three days later Lord I pray for each of us that by your spirit you would speak what does it mean for me what do I need to do These women reacted in fear. I don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We want to react in faith. What does it mean? God, for any here today who have their back to you, who haven't repented of their sins, my prayer is even now they would hear you speaking to their heart. Turn around. Just turn around. The picture in their mind would not be turning around to a principal to a disappointed or angry parent. The picture would be turning around to a father who loves them more than they can ever fathom. I can't communicate that, Lord. I'm asking you to do that by your Spirit here in this place, even now. And again, for those of us who are walking in the wrong direction, show us what needs to change in us. And then give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. Bo's going to close with worship. We'll have some ministry teams up front. If you want prayer for something, we'd love to pray uh, with you and for you. If you'd like just to pray by yourself, you can come and kneel here on these front rows, and we'll leave you alone. And then Bo will cut us loose when we're done.